0: This is the third Sunday after Epiphany, and last week uh, I preached about vocation, and issues of vocation and what it means in the Christian sense and in the personal sense uh, are going to be part of the cycle of readings we're now in this mini-green season, but also sort of a preparatory period uh, prior to Lent. You should all be lucky in the old liturgy we had all these Sundays before Lent, sexagesima, then you had to try and explain that to people, you know. So, septuagesima, all of that. So we don't do that anymore, but the the biblical readings have uh, something to do with issues that will uh, come to us with perhaps more depth and more intensity during Lent, and today we have one of them, and that is the issue of repentance, at least that's what I'm going to preach about, and it's particularly because of the reading from the book of Jonah, which I like very much, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of repentance and how we understand it, um, and maybe some um, uh, fresh ways of understanding the issue of repentance, uh, and so on, and then perhaps to say some things about how it is um, we understand our own processes of repentance, uh, corporately and personally, but also how do we deal graciously with the repentance in other people or their claim that they have repented or have changed direction and how well do we receive that news and do we believe it or not? And are there any tools that we need to bring into play to assist us so that we... um, Look after ourselves in that process, because uh, when we talk about repentance, we're talking about our internal emotional, spiritual, and mental states, but we're also talking about our re- relational life and how we do uh, in relationship to other people. At 8 o'clock, as we were about ready to go into the church for the liturgy, Stu Svensson said to me, boy, that reading from First Corinthians is Incomprehensible to me, and I said, "Well, I'm not going to preach about it this week." But then I thought, "Well, maybe a brief word." So this is all off the top of my head, but let me let me say something uh, to you about this. Uh, the fancy way to talk about this in academic circles is that what you have here in First Corinthians. Uh, we have it in First Thessalonians and other places is sort of uh, an example of paul 's eschatology, and what that means is talking about the the issues of the end of the world or things that are going to happen when God comes and um, uh, puts everything right. so Christian people have had a variety of views, one of the most popular is that there's going to come a time when God comes and we have a divine ethnic cleansing, and then everybody who's in is in, right? And everybody who's out is out. When you read these passages from Paul that are hard to understand, remember this one, by the way, occurs at the end of an extended um, writing on marriage and how, what he thinks about marriage. But in light of his eschatological outlook, which was that, I didn't say scatological outlook, I said <laughs> eschatological outlook, uh, that there is a um, belief in that something is going to happen soon. And Paul believed uh, in fairly dramatic terms that the, that the Savior would come again but that we would begin to see within human history certain things occur which would give us an understanding that we have to have a reorientation or repentance of some kind moving forward. And here's the thing. It did happen. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians somewhere in about 57, 50 to 60. In 70 AD, the Roman army came into Jerusalem and burned down the temple. And all of the Christian people, or most of them in Jerusalem, and most of the Jews fled the city. The city was in ruins. It was a cataclysmic event. It was an apocalyptic event. And so the Gospels were all written after that. So when they talk about uh, the, the... what's going to happen, and Jesus is speaking about, you know, all these things that occur. It's within that historical reality that they're speaking about. And those events in history were made sense of by their understanding of somehow God's purposes being renewed in their understanding of God's presence and how they cooperate with it as we move forward in in our lives personally and corporately. So Paul is talking about that. And all of the abstruth sings about act as if you're not married and you're not mourning. and it Just, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I remember in seminary, John Roof came into the Paul class. The Dino has taught the Paul class. John Roof would walk in. He was a New Testament. All he'd walk in with was the Nestle New Testament, the Greek New Testament. And he'd open it up, and he'd make a simultaneous translation into English, reading Greek text. He'd read read an English translation to everybody. And more than once in 1 Corinthians, he looked at the class and said, I haven't the slightest idea what this means. (laughs) So if you feel that way, don't feel like the Lone Ranger. (coughs) And he went to Harvard. (laughs) All right, let's talk a little bit about repentance. And then I'll talk about... Noah. Uh, repentance in the New Testament, in in the um, Hebrew Bible, repentance means to uh, return to God, shub, or to turn to God. And so the people constantly in the history uh, of of ancient Israel, uh, the Hebrew Bible is about God's faith covenant faithfulness and the waywardness of the people and God's steadfastness, and they're coming to realize they need to return to God, and they need to think things, of things in a new way. So that's the sort of uh, Old Testament uh, source and origin of the idea of repentance. In the New Testament, the uh, repentance means to turn around, to reorient yourself. There are two words in Greek that are used. One is metanoia, which is to turn around, and the other one used far less is epistrophe. Both of them means the same thing, except the sense of the word epistrophe has to do more, not just with turning around, more less with the internal states that metanoia is, where you decide to turn your life around and you have made a decision. You know, the processes of conversion, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, that's what metanoia is, and it's the word that's used most often. But epistrophe says it's those things, but it's used, that word, the word epistrophe is used in the context that says once I have made these internal decisions, I now have to put it in my hands. I've got to make it real in relationship and in the world, in my behavior, and I've got to do something about it, saying it. Uh, is one thing, but it's doing is quite another matter. And so in the New Testament, we have both these ideas of a reorientation. Uh, Marcus Borg, in a book that he wrote a a few years ago now, called um, The Heart of Christianity, uh, has a section on repentance, which I like very much, and I'm going to read part of it to you. Um, He's concerned, and I think most of us... Uh, Many of us in our tradition are concerned about the fact that when Christians have uh, preached repentance, they have focused on our individual personal failings, and the process of repentance is to sort of guilt everybody into the way in which we now uh, need to change our behavior. It is not primarily, as Borg would say, a condition that we're repenting of. But it it, it is a resolve that we're going to do it. Repentance in the New Testament has an additional nuance of meaning from the Hebrew Bible. The Greek roots of the word combine to mean go beyond the mind that you have been given and acquired. Go beyond the mind shaped by culture to the mind that you have in Christ. So God's transforming work is going to make you see things in a new way. You know, uh, our religious convictions are not the only location where we have to do this and have done this. Is it? There's a lot of times when there's a sort of, we wouldn't call it repentance, but you'd say I need to reorient myself in some way or I have now uh, seen that I'm gonna, my life is going to take this kind of a direction. And this is what I intend to do. But Borg also raises the issue, which is very important. If we should say, properly so, that focusing on our own individual shortcomings as the, is what repentance is all about, feeling guilty and um, somehow uh, second class because of these things is not good, He also says it's important for us to understand that when we do things or live a way that we shouldn't, we should have some remorse. We should be sorry. And we live in a culture that has no remorse about anything, really, if the truth be told. There's a wonderful book, I me- haven't mentioned it in a long time, it was written in 1991 by a man named Richard Tarnas, and the book is called The Passion of the Western Mind. If, if you've never read it, it's really, really good, and uh, I would recommend it. At the end, he kind of gets, he spent a lot of time in, in esalen towards the end of his and you know he was we he, there's a few things that he goes into that maybe you say well maybe this could be the subject of a small monograph <laughs> and not included necessarily in this great book which is a survey of western ideas it's it's used in some colleges now a, a, as a textbook it's very it's really quite good he quotes from a mexican poet and writer some of you may have heard of octavio paz who says The examination of conscience and the remorse that accompanies it, which is a legacy of Christianity, has been and is the single most powerful remedy against the ills of our civilization. You know, when we as a group of people begin to say we've been thinking and doing things a certain way. Here's what uh, we've done. We need to now somehow repent of that and move in a direction where we really mean business when we say we want to do the best for the most. So maybe we need to be sorry. Sorry about some of the things. You know, the paradox about Christianity and a lot of Western civilization is that we can sit here, and now it's quite fashionable to do this, and read off a catalog of the shortcomings of Western civilization and where we've just not done this. But also, it seems somehow that the seeds of repentance and the ability to change direction is also present in these ideas. So, you know, sometimes Gandhi may have been right when he said, Christianity is a great idea, but it's never been tried. <laughs> so thinking about repentance in that way, you know, might be a, a helpful thing. Now, all this has something to do, usually people get into a repentance mode when they're going through a conversion process or thinking that they're, they're becoming converted. And the great writers in Western Christianity who have described their own personal conversion experience, Paul is one, uh, Augustine is another one in his famous book, The Confessions of St. Augustine. He's, th- they both say, and others uh, who are lesser known, that four things tend to happen to them. One is a disorientation. You were knocked off your pins in some way. Something happens and you're completely at sea. And during that time, you begin to do some reflecting about your past life, some, your personal history. What it is that uh, you've done and how you've seen and understood things. So you do some kind of internal reflection, self-examination. Let's use that terminology. And then you begin to feel and perceive that you have experienced forgiveness for your past failures and a sense of the mercy of God That it is at least present and accessible to you. And finally, you believe that you have experienced an intervention and a call from some enabling other with a capital O. So in the recovery movement, you'd say higher power or God in Christianity. So the, the, the processes of conversion are there. My own personal view is, is that we don't all become converted at once. Or we get converted and we fall away and then we get reconverted and somehow the process of repentance isn't some once and for all thing and said, oh, that's good, I'm saved. You know, that's been taken care of. I think we're in the process of some... Dave Knapp was here a couple of weeks ago and he talked about uh, uh, someone who said uh, that he knew in in the South. They said, have you been saved? And she said, every day... (laughs) every day I've been saved so Jonah this is one of the great books it's a small you know the the minor prophets remember a major prophet has a big book (laughs) and a minor prophet has a little book so Isaiah Ezekiel Jeremiah the longest book in the Old Testament they are major prophets And the minor prophets are, you know, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, you know, books like that. And they're small. But what they say is just as important. Jonah, this is all about vocation too. It's very interesting. God uh, calls Jonah. He tells him he wants him to go to Nineveh and he wants him to... Prophesy to the people of Nineveh and tell them that if they continue in the way they're behaving, there is going to be trouble and plenty of it. Now the subtext here in the thought world of the time and the origin of the book is, this is a Jewish book. It's about the covenanted people and their relationship to other non-covenanted people, the Gentiles. And Nineveh is full, is all Gentiles. So Jonah's saying to himself, what in the world is God fussing with Nineveh for? They're outside. They're not in. So he tries, that's one of the excuses he uses to try to avoid this. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh and to do this. And so then, we, we didn't read today, you know, the big famous story where he gets swallowed by a fish, a big fish, for, and he's in the belly of the fish for three days. And then finally the fish coughs him up onto the land. And he goes to Nineveh. So he goes to Nineveh and he prophesies. He says to them what God said to say. And you know what? They all go, oh no, I didn't know. Okay, we'll change. (laughs) (laughs) They repented. And they changed their ways. And they exhibited in external terms their uh, repentance in terms of their garments and all that they did. They repented. uh, Jonah is furious. He's absolutely furious at God Because the outcome was what it should be. And so then we have a story of him going out. And he's sitting under a thing. And he's doing all this sort of stuff. And finally God kind of chews him out at the end. And says, who are you to be mad? You would do well to be mad, he said. Isn't it it okay for me to have mercy on Nineveh, that great city? And the concluding sentence in the book is, and also many cattle? Right? So I'm thinking to myself, how do you and I feel sometimes when you see somebody who may have been a bad actor and they've turned around and changed? Now, I'm not talking about somebody who's telling you they've changed. Right? We all need to be careful about that, don't we? And so I know, but I'm, I'm, I prom- I'm not going to do that anymore. I, I, won't, I won't do that anymore. I have, I have turned over a new leaf. I'm not going to do it. Well, sometimes it's true, and a lot of times it isn't. So you need to protect yourself. And that's where maybe when the Savior says you need to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, that comes in, you know, to exercise a hermeneutic of suspicion <laughs> about the behavior of some people, right? So in behavior, epistrophe, you begin to see made manifest some a concrete indication that there has been a reorientation. Father Keating would say repentance is to change the direction where you're looking for happiness. And Augustine said, all souls are restless. We are all restless until we find our rest in you, in God. So I suspect that the processes of repentance have something to do with how that happens. And I don't believe it happens o- overnight, and I think we, we uh, need to be open to that. Alan Jones, uh, the former dean of Grace Cathedral, in his book Reimagining Christianity said, Conversion means having the heart open to and sometimes broken by new possibilities. And so the process of conversion and repentance is something that can uh, be arduous. This week, uh, give thanks for the possibility of repentance. Uh, Understand it in Marcus Borg's terms as a new resolve, you know. And to see that uh, it's an essential piece to anybody firming up their many vocations. As you live your life and you you decide you're going to do it a certain way, uh, the older I've gotten, the more I realize in any vocation anybody has, it's the quotidian challenges that face us that are the things that grind you down. It's not your commitment to the great ideas, right? To, to, to what it is that you're converted to. It's your commitment to say, I am willing to uh, have the interior self discipline and regulation to meet those ordinary and commonplace challenges, you know? and not think of it always as Chinese water torture. Right? Which you can see like sometimes, you know? So the process of repentance is coming to a clearer uh, vision about that and a greater level of um, acceptance. In the old talk in the spiritual life, the old-fashioned language I was taught, uh, we don't use it much because it can be misunderstood, but this kind of acceptance is called resignation. Resignation. I'm, resi- it mean I'm resigned now to just having terrible things continue to happen to me. I <laughs> have to go through the daily grind and it's off. All- but it's the resignation that you say, I, I have to have the, the uh, internal self-regulation and strength to do this, the stamina. <clears throat> and the processes of conversion and repentance are elements that assist in that process. So give thanks to God for their possibility and uh, rejoice when you see someone else who truly has repented. Amen.